You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. You know, the name of the book is In Search of Lost Films, and with a title like that, I am bound to pick it up. Oh, really? That's great. What kind of triggered you putting this one together? I've been writing about film history for about 30 years, and there's always been a curious aspect about that because in doing research on many great artists on both sides of the camera, there are many instances where films don't exist anymore. This is a bit strange because you can't have a complete appreciation of somebody's output unless you have access to all of their work. And in recent years, a number of films that have been considered irretrievably lost have been recovered. And I figured, well, gee, maybe uh, time's right for a new book on the subject of lost films. The last truly great book on the subject came out 20 years ago, and that was Frank Thompson's book, Lost Films. And so much has happened in those 20 years, I thought uh, the time was right for an update on the subject and also an expansion on the subject. Because one thing I noticed in doing a lot of research on lost films was that there was a tendency to focus on American silent films that disappeared. And granted, there are many of them that are lost, but there are also a surprisingly large number of sound films made in the U.S. that have disappeared as well as films from other parts of the world. And I thought it would be a good idea to have a more comprehensive overview of what's missing. So for you, when you decided to write about stuff, because I know that there are, what, hundreds, if not thousands of lost films out there. How did you decide what you're going to narrow it down to? I know that you do, you talk about silent films, but you also do talk about sound films, and especially early talkies, which I really appreciated reading about some of those. Just to correct you, I think the number might be in the tens of thousands, if not higher, if we factor in films from all over the world. Uh, the book itself required a lot of research at various levels. Uh, it was a year overdue. I was supposed to have it out last year, but there was so much research going into it and so much fact-checking that it was required that the deadline had to be pushed back several times. Uh, I, a lot of the problems I had was trying to get information from multiple sources that contradicted each other. Uh, in the book, one of the uh, more famous examples that's been cited in a lot of uh, media coverage of the book uh, involved two films made by a famous schlockmeister named Phil Tucker. Many people might know him from movies like Robot Monster or Dancehall Racket. Well, apparently, he had uh, made two films that are missing, and he spoke about them in length in a couple of books written by the Medved Brothers, The 50 Worst Films of All Time and the Golden Turkey Awards. And it would be very easy to just uh, cut and paste from the Medved book and put it into my book. But in doing research, I started to find that there were some mistakes in the, uh, the Medved books, and information didn't quite jive, and particularly with uh, Space Jockey, because... Phil Tucker said that Space Jockey came out before Robot Monster, when in fact I found news coverage that had the film in production after Robot Monster was in theaters. Uh, there's also a very famous story that Phil Tucker was uh, so despondent over Robot Monster's release that he threatened to kill himself. 
when in fact I couldn't find any evidence that he did that. In fact, I found Ed Wood of all people saying that there was a, a notorious bad filmmaker in Hollywood who always threatened suicide whenever he didn't get money from his producer. So if you can imagine Ed Wood criticizing another filmmaker, it shows you what Phil Tucker was. But Tucker also told them that, that, that he had made a film called Pachuca, which he called his masterpiece. But I couldn't find any evidence this movie ever existed. In fact, I even contacted the Library of Congress, and one of their archivists was extremely helpful in doing research, and he came back and he said he could find no evidence at all that this movie existed. Tucker claimed that the film had been released in Texas at a drive-in, but there was a riot at the drive-in during the, uh, the screening, and the, the screen wound up being torn down. And the Library of Congress archivist couldn't find any news coverage from the Texas newspapers of the era that anything like that ever happened. So that's one of the problems I had to come up with. Um, another famous example about uh, urban legends involved King Kong. Now, one of the, supposedly one of the most famous missing scenes of all time was the spider pit sequence from King Kong. And the story goes that this was in the original film and... Audiences were just so frightened by what they saw on screen that RKO had to take the film back and cut out the sequence. And in doing research, I found out that not only was the sequence never included in any release print of the movie, but the, uh, the segment wasn't even completed. It was just silent test footage that was shown to the RKO executives so they could get an idea what the special effects would look like. Uh, that the spider pit segment was never finished. There was no sound effects, no scores. And nobody ever saw it outside of uh, the screening of RKO's executives. So over the years, somehow that's become embellished into this uh, incredibly violent, grisly, scary sequence. When in fact, uh, nobody ever saw that segment when it was in theaters. Well, I appreciate that you're not just looking at what I, I imagine some people would consider the lost masterworks. You know, obviously, during research on the guy who gave us Robot Monster and Dance Hall Racket, shows that you are willing to go beyond the, the norm and, and talk about more than just Metropolis and Napoleon and all of these kind of things. So I really appreciate that about the book was that it did take a look at both what I would consider classics and maybe not so classic, but still treating them with the same scholarly approach. I appreciate that. Uh, one of the films that I had discovered in my research, which was really a very sad discovery, was a 1927 movie uh, called Poro College in Moving Pictures. And that was a documentary about Poro College, which was in Missouri, and it was the first African-American cosmetology school. And it was created by a woman named Annie Malone, who was a forgotten pioneer in American business history. She was uh, one of the first African-American women to uh, amass a fortune that'd be considered a million dollars by today's standards. And this was a film which showed her life, her career, and the school she founded and the women who went to the school who became uh, self-sufficient businesswomen thanks to her. And uh, there's absolutely no uh, information at all as to uh, who made the film, how long it had been in release. I could determine it was still being shown as late as the early 1930s. Uh, and there are no pictures from the films either, so we have no idea what any of the, uh, the footage looked like. So... Most people probably wouldn't include something like that in a book on lost films, but as you had mentioned, I was trying to get the entire cinematic experience, not just the obvious classics, not just the A-list directors and stars, but also smaller films like that, and also a funky little movie like Space Jockey as well, because that's what movies are all about. Movies aren't all about classics. There are also uh, mediocrities, there are atrocities, and there are also curios that... Uh, 
reflective of our times, as in the case of the Poirot College film. Now, one thing that you brought up a little bit earlier was talking about how it's not thousands of films, it's tens of thousands of films, especially when we look outside of the borders of the U.S. And I just wanted to read a little bit from your book here. In some cases around the world, the national cinema heritage contains extraordinary voids. The majority of Japan's pre-World War II cinema is gone from the earliest anime and kaiju endeavors cannot be seen today. The survival rate of the early films made in India, Korea, Latin America, South Africa, and the Middle East is so minimal at best, while many key efforts in the rise of your European cinema cannot be located. And I don't know how many people really realize just the extent of that. You know, it, it seems like we are so chauvinistic as Americans and thinking that, you know, we own the cinema industry that we don't really think about those early cinemas of other countries. And especially there's the tragedy of Japan and how we just don't have those early films. I mean, just recently a film by Ozu was found an early one, but I think that's really the exception to the rule. And I think a lot of people don't even realize that there was Japanese cinema before Akira Kurosawa happened along. Because a lot of the films in Japan and elsewhere in the world were never released in the United States. So Americans have no idea that these films exist because we never had any access to them. And that's why a lot of the international films vanished, because there was no international distribution. Many American films, particularly from the silent era, uh, survived because they were sent overseas, and they wound up either in private collections or museums and archives. They weren't returned to the uh, U.S. distribution companies. So we're thankful because of the... uh, overseas deposits of these films, but it wasn't reciprocal. The European films and the Asian films didn't come to the U.S. during the 20s and 30s, uh, certainly not with any great degree, and because of that, so many of these films were lost. In doing the research for this book, I, that was the tricky part, too, because I, had to, I didn't really know that much about, say, Indonesian cinema or South African cinema, so I had to do uh, extensive research just to see what films were created when their film industries began and what was lost. One of the more interesting discoveries for me was South African cinema, because I didn't even know that they were making films in South Africa in the 1910s, and I got in touch with their national film archives to uh, determine what films were still missing and what films were still extant. A lot of their silent films are gone, including some early animated films, which were being made down there, which I find fascinating. But uh, mercifully for them, a lot of their early sound films still survive. I have to say, I was shocked. I didn't realize that before King Kong met Godzilla, that King Kong had appeared in Japan. Uh, in two ripoff versions. Not This isn't the real King Kong. Uh, there was a, a Japanese King Kong made in 1933 and King Kong Arrives in Edo in 1938. Uh, they were made without permission of the RKO studio. I'm assuming they were never shown elsewhere outside of Japan and that RKO had no idea they were even made. Uh, From what I could determine, these films were destroyed during World War II, during the bombing raids in the country, where a lot of the uh, the stored films at that time were gone. But uh, what survives of those films are two stills. There's a still photo from the 1933 Japanese King Kong where a man in a very bad gorilla suit is standing on top of the Japanese parliament holding a a woman in a kimono, sort of a Japanese feirei. And uh, King Kong arrives in Edo. The... uh, the King Kong in that doesn't really look like a gorilla at all. He's sort of a, a combination, the chipmunk, uh, Don King hair, and 
he has a tea tank, a bad overbite, and he's in this uh, weird monkey suit, but he doesn't quite look like a monkey. I, I don't know what they were thinking when they put that one together. Sounds almost like Robot Monster with uh, a bunch of leftover parts. Yeah. That one, I, I'm sorry that one is gone because it must have been a lot of fun to see that. Well, and again, you know, I just want to point out to the listeners that, you know, you you talk about greed and you talk about the Magnificent Ambersons. And of course, we've covered the Magnificent Ambersons on the show before. But you talk about that in the same chapter that you talk about something like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And I didn't realize that there were pieces that had been, you know, expurgated from that that we might never see again. That's actually one of the anti-classics, the footage that was lost involved Bela Lugosi as the Frankenstein monster speaking. His character originally had dialogue, but uh, apparently when preview audiences saw this, they started laughing because they, they had Dracula's voice coming out of the Frankenstein monster. And Lugosi, I think, was 60 years old at the time in very poor health, so he was probably the worst possible choice to play the monster. So uh, universal panic, they cut out all of uh, the dialogue sequences, but it made the film even more bizarre, because if you recall the film, Lugosi is walking around with uh, his eyes squinted uh, and arms reaching out, and it's never explained why, but if the dialogue was still in the film, the audience would have realized that the monster went blind from the earlier, uh, I think it was Ghost of Frank, because there was a blood transfusion between the monster and Igor, and the blood wasn't compatible, so the monster gained Igor's uh, ability to speak, but was not able to see. You've got a section of the book called The Napoleon Effect. Can you tell me a little bit more what you mean by that? Well, uh, that's Abel Gantz's uh, Napoleon, the, the classic silent film. And for many people, that sort of spurred uh, an awareness of the fact that uh, they were lost films, but films could be recovered because the, uh, the Gantz film had been in a mutilated state for so many years, and it was because of Kevin Brownlow being able to piece together a lot of the footage, including the the three-screen polyvision climax. And this helped to uh, bring about not only an appreciation of film preservation, but also showed there's money in it, too, because uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Zoetrope uh, Studios re-released Napoleon in the U.S. in the restored version of what was the original attempt at a restoration, because since then there's been more footage discovered. And that opened at Radio City Music Hall in New York, and it was a major success, and it toured all over the U.S., and it was overseas as well. And at that point, film preservation was no more uh, just an academic pursuit. It suddenly became commercially viable, and other studios started to track down lost footage of uh, films that had been cut down over the years, most notably Star is Born, the George Cooker version and started putting these back into theaters. And this was when uh, home video was becoming prevalent. So a lot of these older films that had not been on TV and had not been seen for many years all of a sudden came back in uh, home releases. So new audiences were able to appreciate them. What do you think about the state of film preservation now and the way that some old films are being preserved? And then other times it feels like maybe we don't want those extras, maybe we don't care about some of these uh, uh, extra bits and bobs that are being recovered, and because it doesn't seem like there's necessarily a market for them um, with kind of uh, plastic media maybe not being as strong as it once was. Well, I think the problem, not just the plastic media, but also a lot of younger people aren't aware of film history or the importance of what had been produced in previous generations. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in an office, and there were two 
young people in their early 20s there, I wanted to share a story with them uh, regarding my friend, the late film critic Paul Wonder. He had encountered Robert Mitchum during a press junket of the David Lean classic, Ryan's Daughter. This was back in 1970. And I was relating Paul's story, and these uh, two young people were looking at me like uh, like I fell off the moon. And I had to stop, and I said, what's wrong? And they had never heard of Robert Mitchum, they had never heard of David Lean, and they didn't know what Ryan's daughter was. So there was, I had to stop the story. There was no point in continuing it. And that could be a problem going forward, because if you don't have an audience that appreciates cinema history, older productions, the whole concept of preserving important works from the past, uh, there might be a reversal of mind frame, and uh, a lot of the studios might think, well, what's the point of doing this? If it's just for academic purposes, we can just as easily shut this off to the, uh, the George Eastman House or the, uh, the AFI and let them handle it, and, uh, because there's no reason for us to put these out. Now, you mentioned calling up the uh, Library of Congress, which is always a, a, a fun thing to do, I'm sure, but how else did you go about researching the book? A lot of online research. Um, I had my own library of uh, film books, including Frank Thompson's book, obviously, which was a major inspiration. Going through a lot of articles that I've written in the past on the subject, I've been. This isn't just something I just came to. I've been writing about lost films for a number of years. I was actually at the center of a controversy um, about what was this? I'd say maybe about ten, uh, ten years ago when I was uh, writing for Film Threat when that was still online and supposedly it's coming back. I did a, an article of the 50 most sought-after lost films of all time. And uh, just to be playful, I decided to include uh, a 1974 uh, gay porno film called Him in the, the mix. I was, uh, and I can thank the Medvets for that because in the Golden Turkey Awards book, they mentioned Him. So that's where I first learned about it. And apparently there are no prints of this movie around. Him is a story about a a uh, young man who becomes sexually obsessed with the uh, the notion of Jesus Christ. And after the article was published, there was a, a minor fury online. The, uh, the Gawker website, which mercifully is no longer with us, uh, wrote an article saying 49 lost films and one hoax. They said that him was a hoax because in the Medved book, they planted a hoax article and they had the readers try to guess what it was. Well, I knew what it was because when the book came out in 1979, I had contacted the Medvets. I was a teenager at the time, and they told me what it was. So I know it wasn't him, but the Gawker editor assumed that it was. And then uh, there was a uh, an online forum of film archivists which repeated that, saying, "Why is him in this list? Because this is a hoax." And it's no, it's not a hoax. So uh, this is something I've been putting up with for uh, for a number of years, and. Uh, as luck would have it, I've been able to find uh, a lot more information on him. Uh, also found out who made it, too, which was rather interesting, because for many years people didn't know who the director was. There was a name on the uh, the credits that said, directed by Ed D. Louie. And, of course, with porno films, everybody puts up a false name, so people were wondering, well, who was Ed D. Louie? Some people thought it was Ed Wood, because he had made porn films towards the end of his career. And... In doing research and speaking to other people who have been looking into it, I was able to determine who Eddie Louie is. And it turns out Eddie Louie was Eddie Louie. That was his real name. (laughs) 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 He was, I know, he was not a filmmaker. He was uh, the manager of a a gay porn theater in New York called the 55th Street Playhouse. And the owner of the theater was uh, his brother-in-law. And he decided... uh, 
to uh, produce this film, and he had Eddie Louie direct it, even though the man never directed the film before, and from what I can determine, never directed one since. So uh, I think I've sort of uh, gone on a rather bizarre detour from your original question, so I, I hope that's not a problem. No, not at all, because I've been fascinated by the film Him. I know that you wrote about Tom from uh, Pippidelic Wonderland had, had that on his you know missing and, and wanted list for a lot of years. And so, yeah, I've, I've been curious about this since the early 2000s. So any information that you dig up on it, and so I really appreciate that you went so far, I mean, to even talk to Wakefield Poole, whose Bible, I know, was another one that I really wanted to see over the years and just you know, was like, oh, well, Will this ever come out? So I was glad that you went down that road as well. Wakefield Poole was extremely helpful uh, in that chapter of the book. Because he was one of the few people who saw him and is still with us to talk about the movie. Uh, to determine that it was lost and that Pimpadelic wasn't mistaken, I actually uh, made inquiries of uh, all the distributors that put out adult film, and nobody had a copy of him. And everybody knew that this was a uh, sought-after film. The last person I spoke to said there was a rumor that a print still existed in uh, a private collection in New York City, but he didn't know anything more than that. So rather than go door to door asking if anybody has a copy, I'm just going to hope that sooner or later it will surface. There's something about porn and religion that just goes so well together. And again, this is an aspect of lost films that uh, you probably wouldn't find in an academic book that would be focusing on greed or Magnificent Ambersons or London After Midnight. This is a wider aspect of the entire cinematic experience, and that's what I was hoping to incorporate into the book. Obviously, when it comes to something like him, you kind of have this history with that film. But when it comes to, like, I don't know, Zigfield Follies, 1946, what makes that one stand out enough that you say, I'm going to include this in my book? That was an extraordinary uh, story because the, the MGM musical... I don't know who was in charge of that, but they just kept shooting and shooting and doing more and more musical numbers till they wound up with something along the lines of a four-hour movie. And they had they tried testing it, and audiences were exhausted and confused by it. So they had to uh, cut out some numbers, and then they filmed new numbers. And it's it's a textbook example of how not to make a movie, and it's astonishing what was lost from the film, what had been cut out, because... There were uh, two Jimmy Durante musical numbers that were taken out, no explanation why. There was a Fred Astaire uh, number called uh, When the Swing Goes, So Do I. He's backed by the 25 male dancers. I I have a picture of it in one of the books in my collection, and uh, it looked like a very, uh, very strange and vigorous number. Uh, there was a number starring a man named Avon Long, who was one of the uh, the great black performers in Broadway in the 1940s, and he uh, performed the song Liza with MGM's only African-American star at the time, Lena Horne. And uh, that was an all-black musical number. They were backed by black men in white tuxedos. Uh, it was directed by Vincent Minnelli, I believe, and that number got cut as well. And I'm just thinking, oh, it's also um, Fanny Bryce did Baby Snooks, in the film as well, but that sequence got cut out as well. That's the only time she ever put Baby Snooks in a movie. And in doing the research, I'm saying to myself, my, my goodness, why didn't they save any of this? Because when you realize the rehearsal, the costume fittings, the hair and makeup tests, the orchestrations, the choreography, the shooting in Technicolor, which was very expensive at the time, and all of this footage was just thrown out. It's the most astonishing waste imaginable. 
Well, I am glad that you do include these kind of rays of hope to talk about some of the things that have been found over the last few years or decades. And that that really, it invigorates me, at least when I see these stories, when I know that something like Too Much Johnson has been found a few years ago and now is part of the canon of Orson Welles, you know, which I guess for every one of those, maybe there's a Magnificent Ambersons or the uh, the rehearsal of, of, what was it, Moby Dick. Uh, maybe one of these days the this, this scales will, will tip more in the pro column than the minus column. I think so. Welles, uh, Moby Dick rehearsed, uh, the last sighting of the footage was in the late 1960s. So there is a possibility that it exists someplace. It was, uh, it was shot in London. Uh, Last time it was delivered to a TV production company, which wouldn't take it because they didn't want to pay customs charge, and it went back to the British Customs Office. What happened then, nobody knows. But a lot of Wells' work that was considered lost has turned up, uh, one form or another. Too much Johnson was a, was a very happy surprise because, according to the story, the only surviving material was destroyed in a fire in 1971 at Wells' home in Spain. And in 2013, it turned up in an Italian warehouse, and now you can see it online for free, so that's quite good. Uh, Wells did a TV documentary about Gina Lola Brigida that had been lost for many years and then was recovered. Uh, parts of his Merchant of Venice have turned up, though the, the whole footage is, is incomplete. The soundtrack, I think, to two reels is gone. So there's a, there's a survival rate there. It's a bit spotty, but... Uh, stuff that had been considered to be unavailable for many years does turn up, not just with Wells, but with other filmmakers as well. My favorite story for recovery was a, a Three Stooges movie called Hello Pop, which was made in Technicolor at MGM in 1933. And it was considered to be one of the casualties in the vault fire from 1967 at the MGM studio. And no print of the film was known to exist until a couple of years ago when uh, somebody in Australia walked into his garden shed, was looking around, and found a, a copy of the film. So, who knows? What were some of your biggest surprises while you were doing the research for the book? Oh, the big surprise is that it's just uh, the volume of lost films is greater than I ever imagined. Because uh, when you start to incorporate sound films and international films, uh, it goes far beyond the, the usual uh, stuff that's been written in the past about silent movies. I was really surprised about how many sound films from the late 20s and early 30s uh, are gone. Even well into the 40s and 50s, uh, films have vanished. Uh, that's something that has never really truly been focused on. Most previous books on lost films, if they mention sound movies, I'll mention Convention City or the Rogue Song, but they're not going into a lot of the... Uh, the films from that era, which uh, were a lot of them were in Technicolor, some of them were widescreen at a time when the studio started experimenting with 70 millimeter production, and uh, these were breakthrough films, if not from an artistic aspect, certainly from a technological aspect, but they're not with us anymore. Well, again, kind of going back to the more, I suppose, the more outhouse as opposed to the art house kind of stuff, such as the uh, the write up of Naughty Dallas. I was really uh, excited to see you talk about that one. That's Larry Buchanan's movie. That was a stripper film he made in Texas uh, in the early 1960s, and it's in the book because in his autobiography, Larry Buchanan uh, mentioned he ran into a production problem because he wanted to get the girls from the Carousel Club in Dallas into his film, but he couldn't shoot it at the Carousel Club because the lighting uh, wouldn't be feasible. It had very low ceilings. But the Carousel Club was run by a man named Jack Ruby, 
and uh, the only way he could get Ruby's girls into the film was to shoot dummy footage that included Ruby, and apparently had two days where uh, Ruby handed up for the cameras playing uh, a bouncer at the uh, the club in the movie, and Buchanan shot the film of Ruby and with no intention of ever including it, and he got the production wrapped, threw away the Ruby footage, and then shortly afterwards, obviously the, the worst possible thing happened in Dallas, and there was rumors started to spread that there was this footage of Ruby with Lee Harvey Oswald that was shot by <laughs> Larry Buchanan. Um, it wasn't. Ruby actually never met Oswald because Oswald was not in Dallas at the time that the movie was being made. But that's something that haunted Buchanan. Not only the fact that the, this evidence of Ruby was thrown away, but also he realized he could have made a fortune selling it. So. I was really surprised to read about help. I thought that that was a real, you know, viable thing. I thought that that was available for some reason because I remember reading about it. I probably read about it in your column years ago. But to have something like that with the Beatles and it's not readily available is kind of mad. Well, no, no. We have to be uh, clear about this. When the film is still available, what you're referring to was a scene in the film with the Beatles and a very famous British comic named Frankie Howard, uh, where in the course of the film, the Beatles are being chased by this, uh, this weird cult, and they go into a drama school run by Frankie Howard, and he as a student was played by Wendy Richards, who later became famous as Miss Slocum in the Are You Being Served sitcom. And uh, this may be lost to a lot of American viewers, but Frankie Howard was a very droll uh, comic who was popular on British TV and British stage in the, the 1950s and 1960s. And so having him in the film would have been a very big thing for British audiences. But uh, Frankie Howe was a type of comic who thrived on rehearsing till he got his timing just right. And during the production of Help the Beatles uh, were enjoying massive amounts of marijuana. So they would come to the film set badly stoned to the point that uh, Richard Lester, the director, had to cue them from off-screen just to get their lines out, and Frankie Howard couldn't really find any comfort level with this, and the Beatles, in turn, didn't like Frankie Howard and the way he was working, so uh, the sequence took two days to film, and Richard Lester realized immediately it wasn't going to work, and it was thrown out. Uh, and United Artists at the time had a policy that if footage was not included in a movie, uh, it would be retained for a year, and then it would be disposed of. So the idea that you'd be throwing out Beatles film, I know it's uh, it's maddening and baffling, but sadly that happened. Of all the films that you either learned about or have written about in the past, what's the one that you would like to see the most, either sequence or full, full-length film? Well, there were, I think there'd be two answers. One for a completely missing film. That would be the 1926 version of The Great Gatsby, because the Fitzgerald's novel is one of my favorites. And I don't think any of the film versions uh, of the book, starting with the Alan Ladd version going through Leonardo DiCaprio, ever got it right. It, they, they just missed the whole spirit of the Fitzgerald novel. Uh, the 1926 film was made during the Jazz Age. There's a one-minute trailer that survives... And the footage of it really looks very enticing, and I would like to imagine that they really uh, came closest to what Fitzgerald was trying to get. In terms of a film whose uh, nature changed dramatically because sequences were removed, I would love to have seen the original four-hour and one-minute version of The Mad, 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 Mad World, which Stanley Kramer turned into United Artists in 1963, and they promptly threw back at him saying, you can't be serious. 
this has to be edited down. So uh, more than a half hour of the uh, original director's cut has been uh, jettisoned and nothing existed. We have a couple of photos here and there and some clues as to what was missing, but I would have loved to have just seen uh, four hours of this completely uh, wonderfully ridiculous madcap comedy epic. I would have happily... uh, sat through the entire thing. Uh, that's the type of film where more is better. Who is putting out the book? Uh, the book is published by a company called Bear Manor Media, and they published uh, my last three books. Uh, they specialize in titles relating to film and TV history, and uh, the publisher, Ben Omar, really deserves a round of applause because he's been very, very patient with me because, as I said, the book was supposed to come out last year, and I had so much research going into it, and writing the book was difficult at times, and he was very patient. He just kept saying, don't worry, don't worry, keep it, keep going, keep going, I have faith in you. And uh, it came out in August, and he's, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for the faith he had in me, because I don't think any other publishing company would have tolerated that. Now, you're one of those people who is always doing something. So not only are you writing, but I know you're um, doing a lot of other projects at the same time. Can you tell me what you're working on now? I'm very happy to report that um, I'm in a film about the recovery of a lost movie. Uh, The film is called Finding Kukan. It's directed by a woman from Hawaii named Robin Lung. And it's about the 1941 documentary Kukan, which was about the... Uh, Chinese resistance to Japan's military occupation during the early 40s. Uh, this was the first documentary feature to win an Academy Award in the Best Documentary category and had been considered lost for many years. And I wrote about Kukan for the, uh, the Film Threat website, and Robin Lung had contacted me and said that she actually had the, the last expand print, which is now being restored by the Motion Picture Academy. And she interviewed me for the film to provide background as to its production and where its uh, value is to the development of nonfiction cinema. So that's starting to go into the festival release now. Hopefully it will be in theatrical release next year. That's one project I had. I was uh, talking about film history in another movie called VHS Massacre, uh, which was put out by a company called Troma, which uh, they are still around, believe it or not. Uh, my segment was supposed to be about uh, the development of cult movies, but unfortunately, uh, my sequence got cut out of the film, which I thought was a mistake because uh, as without it, the film gave the incorrect impression that cult movies arose in the 1980s with VHS video, which is not what happened. However, my sequence is in the Blu-ray release uh, in the special feature section, so mercifully, I'm not among the, uh, the world of lost films. Other stuff, uh, still writing... Uh, about films for this time for the Cinema Crazed website. I might be giving you some competition, too. I have a podcast starting up on October 3rd. It'll be every Monday. Uh, It's called The Online Movie Show with Phil Hall, and it's uh, interviews with uh, people from both sides of the camera, as well as uh, film historians looking at uh, the work of notable cinema artists. And that's going to be debuting on SoundCloud. Well, good. A little competition is always a healthy thing. Well, I don't think um, my efforts will be anywhere as good as yours because uh, your podcast is really the gold standard when it comes to online film talk shows. Oh, shucks. Thanks, Phil. Well, Phil, where's the best place to keep up with you? Well, you can follow me on Facebook at uh, at Phil Hall, easy enough to find. 
uh, you could read my writing, uh, film writing at Cinema Craze. I also write for Video Librarian, and they have stuff on their website as well as in their print edition. Just uh, keep an eye out, because I've been doing a lot of promotion for In Search of Lost Films. And uh, after this, I have uh, three more interviews uh, to do, so... I'm very, very busy. In fact, when I started the uh, the book promotion, I had uh, the Premier Radio Network set up 14 back-to-back interviews. So that was uh, that was quite a talk fest, and I was uh, more than a little exhausted after it was over. Well, I hope I took it easy on you today. Oh yeah, this was uh, this was uh, more than relaxing. I'm really grateful for that. Excellent. Well, the name of the book again is In Search of Lost Films by Phil Hall. Phil, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure talking with you, and we got to get you back on the show. Uh, I'm around. You know where to find me. All right, cool. And hey, good luck with the new podcast. Thank you. That's going to be, uh, look for it at soundcloud.com slash online movie show. The first program debuts October 3rd. I'm interviewing Peter L. Winkler. He is the editor of a book called The Real James Dean. And if you haven't seen it yet, you should uh, check it out. Uh, it'd be very good uh, for your podcast to learn more about what James Dean was like off camera. He was quite a character. Well, I will be sure to link to that over at our website, www.projection-booth.com. So thank you again, fellow. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Mike. 